You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that. So, my question for you as I begin my sermon this morning is What will we do with Jesus? It is the question that the historic person of Jesus of Nazareth and what we have remaining of his words in the Gospels presents to both believers and unbelievers. As we reach this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching us about the dangers of religious enthusiasm, an unexpected danger. See, we tend to like showmanship, spiritual showmanship, and big works. And the reason why we are hungry for the kind of false prophets that Jesus spoke about last week is that it feels like God is being more direct with us. Not its best. That's motivated by a desire to be a part of what God is doing in the world. But more often, It is motivated by the egotistical desire to be important, to be special, to be chosen by God as his instrument to do something extraordinary. John Wimber was a founder of the Vineyard Church movement. And this was a variant of uh, evangelical Christianity that embraced charismatic expression, but sought to resist showmanship and trying to, in his words, forcing God's hand. And he knew the temptation of this firsthand. This is something he wrote towards the end of his life. He said, sometimes our experiences don't fit with our understanding of what the Bible teaches. On the one hand, we know that God is sovereign and that he sent Jesus to commission us to pray for and heal the sick. On the other hand, We know from experience that healing does not always occur. Why would God command us to heal the sick and then choose not to back up our acts, so to speak, by not healing the person for whom we pray? This can be downright discouraging. As I learned years ago in my own congregation when I began to teach on healing, it was nine months before before we saw the first person healed. The temptation was to withdraw from practicing Christ's commands or, at the other extreme, to drum up a false bravado to convince God to do what we thought he ought to do. Hear that last line again. The temptation was to withdraw from practicing Christ's commands or, at the other extreme, to drum up a false bravado to convince God to do what we thought he ought to do. When he won't always do what we expect him to do, what we are convinced he should do, what will we do with Jesus? In my first church, I had a young man who was 
um, just had a lot of, of zeal and enthusiasm and um, started to get very involved in the life of not just our church but another church down the road that was a little bit more a sort of signs and miracles church um, at about age 15. Well, he and his friends uh, became convinced that God was going to use them in a very special way, so they went off to try and perform exorcisms. Um, they were convinced there was a haunted house in the neighborhood and they were going to perform an exorcism over it. One of that group uh, spiraled off very quickly, first into New Ageism and finally into unbelief when his girlfriend's unexpected pregnancy resulted in a spontaneous miscarriage. He didn't know the story of Simon Magus from the book of Acts, but he was replicating his sin, thinking of God and God's power as primarily raw material for the living the life he wanted to live, a life where he was the center stage of what God was doing. He had not even taken the path of discipleship as far as learning to discipline himself, yet he was convinced that God had a special thing he wanted to do through him. If you visit my office, you'll see the, this picture. It's a, a wonderful pen and ink uh, pieta that was done by this man. Uh, Pastor Phil Gagnon is a, a is our director of missions for the North American Lutheran Church. He's also one of the top trained exorcists in North America. I did a 48-hour pastor's training with him about dealing with the demonic. And mostly what he wanted to convince us is that we were out of our depth. About 98% of what he has been called out to look at over the last 35 years has been people dealing with psychological or social problems in their family. But the 1% to 2% that was really demonic stuff, the things he wanted, what he wanted to emphasize to us is that you have no power of your own. No power of your own. Christ has all the power. And we participate in, what, in that power only to the degree that we are operating according to Christ's wishes in alignment with Christ himself and what Christ is trying to do in that situation. And we can only be sure we're doing that to the degree that we have sought his will and have grown accustomed to doing so in the cut and thrust of prayer. And that is preceded by a proper understanding of his teachings through Scripture and the reformation of our own character through the intimate life of prayer. Basically, he encouraged us to be better disciples and if we ran into anything we were convinced was demonic, give him a call. We need to be aligned with Jesus. What will we do with Jesus? Jesus highlights for us today in this section of the Sermon on the Mount the danger of uninformed or misdirected religious zeal, even when it's done in His name and done to good effect. He, no point in this means to imply it doesn't seem that, that any of the signs and wonders didn't actually serve people. 
Well, we avoid this danger by first seeking a correct understanding of the words of Scripture itself. See, there is a reason why historic Christianity has so emphasized teaching as a key component of its religious initiation and practice. And this is in contradistinction to most other religions or many other religions. From the very beginning of the life of the church, those preparing for reception into the church were called catechumens, which is just the Greek word for learner. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, not all of us will gain an equal understanding of Christ's words in this life, but all of us are called to continual growth in understanding. To come to the best and most complete understanding we have, can have of God's Word. And here's why. Bible passages can be quite easily quoted in isolation to support anything we wish. To understand Scripture properly, we must situate it within the story of Christ as the Scripture itself teaches us to do. You've heard this from me again and again, and I'll keep on saying it because we can't hear it too many times. Uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, who is a wonderful uh, scripture scholar, his dad, who had been a pastor, used to say this. He used to say, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Now, in this sense, the word proof text was originally a kind of value-neutral word. It just meant you were going to the Bible to find um, some sort of evidence for what you were teaching. But it's come to mean something very, very different because it's been done so badly for so long by so many public figures. Proof text is usually meant now to mean quoting out of context as an appeal to authority. I want God to back up what I'm trying to say or what I'm wanting to do, so I grab a passage and pull it out of context. Teachers who are playing fast and loose with Christ's words and so misdirect their zeal and the, the energies of the people whom they serve, whom Christ today refers to as workers of lawlessness, are easy to recognize because they hop, skip, and jump all over the Bible like a stone skipping across the water, if you've ever done that as a kid. Their teaching is rarely, if ever, rooted in a deep study of the whole of a book of Scripture or even extended passages of Scripture to give a quote that they have context. So here's some examples. You've probably heard these kind. If you are... a wish to be a little more licentious than the scripture will permit you to do, which is more typical of what they call progressive Christianity, you'll throw out a quote like, God is love, from 1 John, without contextualizing it within some of the other things that John says in that letter. Like, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. On the other hand, if we're hungry for signs and wonders, we'll quote something like Matthew 18, 19. If two of you agree on earth about anything 
they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I've heard that quoted in so many times to justify asking God for outrageous things. And then we neglect to notice that this is part of Jesus' teaching on resolving conflict within the church and restoring unity within the body of Christ. This is not about granting spiritual or material gifts, as the broader context makes clear. This is a long quote, so I couldn't leave that Bible picture up. But this is, you know, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I amongst them. Do you see how the quote sounds completely different when you put it in the whole context of what Jesus is preaching and teaching? We avoid abusing the Scripture by reading the Scripture this way. We begin with passages, yes. We're going to have a quote like God is love. But then we read that within a book and read the whole understanding there. And then we read that book within the larger context of Scripture. In the case of 1 John, the New Testament, and then the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And of course, in the end, we remember what Jesus taught about the Scriptures in Luke 24, which is that ultimately, the whole of the Scriptures is about Jesus Himself. The whole of the scriptures is about Jesus himself. This is hard work. This is hard work, study, learning, loving the Lord our God with all of our mind. We won't take the time to do this unless we have a well-directed zeal It's just like a marriage. I don't know how many times as a young groom-to-be, people told me, marriage is difficult, but it's worth it. It's difficult, but worthwhile. So what will we do with Jesus? Christ is saving us, not just for a better place, better than the one we live in, but for an eternal relationship with the Holy Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the most common metaphor that the Scripture uses, both Old Testament and New, for that relationship is that of a marriage. But in this world, that marital relationship is always mediated through the Word and the sacraments. The sacraments are only, as Augustine famously said, God's Word made visible, touchable, tasteable, feelable. 
Because our unglorified flesh and our unperfected souls cannot yet bear the direct touch of God's uncreated glory. So God condescends through the preaching and speaking of the Word and through the sharing of the sacraments to touch us in ways that grow our faith and bring us along the path of salvation. See, we are always, always receiving God through His Word. First and foremost, through the Word incarnate, which we just celebrated at Christmas. Jesus Himself. Then secondarily, through the Word of God. First and foremost, preached and spoken among the people of God. And then if we're blessed enough to be one of the few people in history who's been able to read, to read it. And then, finally, in glory, at the resurrection of the dead, we proclaim in every time we say the creed, even when we will look upon the face of God directly and be swept up into the eternal life of the Trinity, that internal life of love, we will have that life as a gift through Christ, who is God's Word. If we hunger for God, we will hunger for His Word. Written, preached, and made visible in the sacraments. Most of you don't know we have a group of 20-year-olds that meet monthly at a local restaurant. We call it Wings in the Word, and we discuss things. And I was so impressed with one of these young people. He's, he's a member of another church. The group is uh, multi-denominational. When we were talking on this past Thursday night, he said, you know, everything I do, I think to myself, what will Christ say to me about that at the final judgment? I couldn't help but thinking to myself, I wish I'd been that smart when I was 24 years old and two years married. Everything, not just the big bombastic things, because most of life is made up of the little ordinary things of life. There's a wonderful psychologist out there right now who when a couple comes to him, he says, the couple in trouble, and he'll often say to them things like, you know, well, what do you, what do, you do together? And of course they answer things like, well, we go to the movies and, you know, we, we usually have a special dinner once a week. He says, no, 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 no. What do you do together? Do you do the dishes together? Do you watch television together? Do you work in your garden together? He said, you realize, most of life is made up of those things. If you can figure out how to work with each other through the, the daily chores and the daily grind, you've got 90% of your life figured out. Then the vacations and the, the fun evenings away, those are easy. See, too many of us want the spiritual fireworks, not the long obedience in the same direction of discipleship. The simple things of a Christian life, like coming to church, Hearing a sermon, some good, not some as good. Receiving Christ in the sacraments. Praying. And then going out to put what we have learned to work in the cut and thrust of everyday life. That just seems too ordinary to really change us or change the world. A lot of people want a spectacular wedding, but they don't think as much about what the quality of the marriage day-to-day -day is going to be like. 
And it's just the same in the spiritual life. So what will we do with Jesus? Will we talk to Him? Intentionally giving Him our full attention and focus? Will we listen to Him through the words of Scripture, faithful preaching, good and godly counsel from friends, again, intentionally giving Him our full focus? What will we do with Jesus? It's really the wrong question. Because the real question is, what will Jesus do with us? In the course of an ordinary life with Jesus, there are two things about you that Christ is going to develop. Your character and your competence. Your competence for kingdom work. And that never can exceed your growth in character. Kingdom character is the necessary foundation of kingdom work. Novelist James Lane Allen once said, Adversity does not build character, it reveals it. Christ will develop your character through the Spirit in the course of an ordinary Christian life. Using the Word to reshape your character and form you to be a fit vessel for His intentions. Brooke Foss Westcott, who is the Bishop of Durham and an author of one of the most widely, or uh, an editor of one of the most widely used English translations of the Bible, once said this. He said, Great occasions do not make heroes or cowards. They simply unveil them to the eyes of men. Silently and imperceptibly, as we wake or sleep, we grow strong or weak. And at last, some crisis shows what we have become. Christ is going to build our relationship with Him and strengthen us through prayer. Which is not so much our concerted effort to do something as it is making ourselves available to Him, even and maybe especially when there are no immediate spiritual experiences that verify us and have a profound impact on us. You see, if Jesus is building our character daily because we are exposing ourselves to God's Word through the Bible, the sacraments and prayer, if He is building our kingdom character and teaching us kingdom competency, which is mostly being aligned with Him, in any given situation. When the big moment comes, that moment of challenge or adversity, whether it's something that will be known by the world or not, a key moment in a marriage with a child, a decision on the job that could affect other people's lives, or something even bigger or smaller, it'll be a key moment when it comes what we have become will be revealed in our obedience. And then, we will never hear Jesus say, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
for we will discover that it has been Christ who has been at work in us all along. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, eternal and ever-living God, we give you thanks and praise that you are truly God with us. And we ask you, make us disciplined and obedient in the little daily things of living a Christian life, the ordinary things that seemed to make so little impact, but over time move mountains, including the mountain of our own soul's rebelliousness. Work in us and through us. Have with us your will that we might become more the people we were made to be in the beginning and grow in your grace, reflecting your glory until that day when finally we can perceive it with undimmed eyes. This we ask in your most holy name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life.